Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we have microphones in our faces and you're listening in. So this month, we have one of the people in the world who I have wanted to meet for about, what is it, four or five years. And I haven't, and it's weird because we've literally crossed paths several times. So I'm just really grateful to be sharing space today with Dr. Larisha Hawkins. Hello, somebody. Woo-hoo. Hey, what's up? <laughs> oh, so, so, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming. Dr. Larisha Hawkins, in case you guys don't know, is a scholar, author, and speaker. And we'll be talking more about her story after we do a little bit more of this intro stuff. The second person who is in the room who I'm also really excited to have is Emmy award-winning filmmaker and documentarian, Linda Midget. Go on, somebody. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Seriously. Thank you for having me here. Oh, my God, Linda. I mean, for real, because now Linda and I got to know each other when she was working on the film The Line, mm-hmm. which she, oh, my gosh, you guys, if you haven't seen that, you got to figure out how to, fi- how to find it. You probably get copies of it as Sojourners because that's where she did it. When I was there, she did The Line, and it was and it was a was focused on poverty. But she's here today to talk about a new film that she did, and also Larisha is here to talk about that film as well because she's in it, and it's like actually about her. It's about her life. It's called Same God. It's the story of Dr. Larisha Hawkins' experience of embodied solidarity and its costs in the context of evangelical America. So we would love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or on Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. I have been hearing from faithful listeners. In fact, y'all, I was just in Ireland like last week. I was in Belfast and and the person introduced me saying, you know, you guys know Lisa Sharon Harper from Freedom Road. And I knew they were talking about the podcast. But that means y'all are listening. People are listening all over the world. Thank you for listening. Please share this with your friends. And and that helps the conversation to go out. So tweet us, let people know, tag us, you know, all that good stuff. And share, share, share. Okay. So I remember the first time that I saw the picture of the hijab. I remember this, like when, when you put that hijab on at Wheaton College and I believe, I believe it was for a class that you were teaching, a political science class. And it was in order to teach them about embodied solidarity. And it was posted on Facebook. Um, I saw it, you know, because it got shared all over the place. And I thought to myself, wow, like that's that was bold. And also, I think in me, there were, I mean, I'm an evangelical. I've, I've been one since I was 14 years old. All of those questions of, ooh, is that okay? Like that all surfaced in me. But at the same time, I had had experience of embodied solidarity with Muslim um, people when I went. I was in partnership with the leaders of the Cordoba House back in 2011 and did Ramadan with with them and in partnership with them in order to in order to show solidarity. So I knew that 
I knew, obviously, I didn't get struck down by lightning. This is not something that, this is this is something that Jesus wants and cares about. But still, there was something in me, that resonance stuff, right? So, Larisha, I want us, I want you to take us back to that moment when you put on that fateful hijab. And what led you to that moment? What was it that was happening in the world? And what was it in your mind that made you say, this is what we're going to do? Yeah, well, I mean... So, Lisa, I was teaching a class. I had started the Peace and Conflict Studies program at Wheaton College, and it was the first semester of the intro class. Um, I would work for years to try to build this program. And what, what I was talking a lot about was solidarity has to go beyond theories in a classroom um, to lived, mm-hmm. to being lived. And especially mm-hmm. at a, a Christian school like Wheaton College, um, thinking, you know, I sit on my butt in a classroom all day and talk about justice, but what does doing justice, walking humbly actually look like? And so it was not actually for a class. It was just a student approached me and said, given the heightened scrutiny around Muslims in the U.S., San Bernardino shooting had just happened. I would like to wear a hijab in solidarity with Muslim women on the plane home. This was near the end of the semester um, for context at Christmas break. And so I started trying to check out, like, with the Muslim community, would this be seen in the spirit that it's intended or would this just be considered, you know, Mm -hmm. haram, unclean, Mm -hmm. defiling of the concept of hijab? And, you know, a hijab is just a scarf, a head covering that Muslim women, not all Muslim women, but some women wear. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, let me check this out. And I said, and I'm going to do it with you because I'm not I'm not just going to kind of guide you on this. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm going to join this. Well, of course, the students are. She was about to be finals and she, you know, I was emailing her. She didn't email back. And I said, well, I'm doing this um, (laughs) like we said we were before the last week of school. Uh And so. I put on a headscarf one night, wrote an intentional Facebook post talking about I love my Muslim neighbor, not because they're American, but because um, of our humanness. They're created in in the image of the divine. Mm -hmm. So I stand in human solidarity. And secondarily, I talked about standing in religious solidarity, embodied Mm -hmm. solidarity. And it was Advent. And so for professors, you know, we're grading finals, Mm -hmm. end of semester. And I wanted to make my Advent devotion more meaningful because it's easy to just focus on my profession as opposed to this high holy season for Christians. Mm -hmm. So not unlike Lent, I was like, well, what am I going to put on? I'm going to make the putting on this hijab an Advent devotion. So I wore it throughout the season of Advent, which, you know, goes longer than Christmas Day. Right. And so... The idea was to be literally walking in embodied solidarity. And for me, that motivation comes from the Sermon on the Mount and from Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Um, what does justice look like? And then and justice and righteousness have to go hand in hand. And so I wore the hijab in solidarity with Muslim women throughout. And the Facebook post went viral. And, and yes. then that's set off a firestorm of controversy relative to my position at Wheaton College. Mm-hmm. And I was the first tenured black woman in the history of this university, which was a stop on the Underground Railroad. That actually, can I just say real quickly, because I, 
when all of this happened, I actually had, I didn't know that. I had no idea that it had that history. And one of the things that people talked about a lot was the fact that, well, this is a down university. This is a down or down college, right? Wheaton College. Is it? Is Wheaton yes. College, not Wheaton University. Yes. Right? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> so so why, why could they do this? How could they do this? And I do think that there was, if I recall back before all of this happened, the understanding of Wheaton was that, well, they were the mature ones on the block. Like they were the mature Christian college, the one that wasn't fundamentalist, the one that kind of real like that that the pillars of evangelicalism lifted up as the as the model. And I think after this, quite honestly, I don't know, I started to really question that. So, can I ask you when this is, you know, a little bit going off script, I'm wondering during that time was there a sense for you of where am I? Like, who are these people? Where <laughs> am I? This is different from where I thought I was. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I it was my first academic job, mm-hmm. my wow. only academic job. Wow. And so I started teaching at Wheaton in the fall of 2007. And wow. to think about the fact, again, that in 2013, I become the first black woman tenured in this university's history. Yeah. But also, I will say, you know, you talked about, you know, claiming this evangelical mantle. I mean, growing up in the black church, I didn't call myself an evangelical. Yeah. I was part of Campus Crusade. We have that in common during college because mm-hmm. I wanted to be I wanted to affirm my faith and surround myself with people who would help me mm-hmm. continue in the faith. I didn't know that was evangelical at the time. I, I can know. look back now and put that label on there. Yeah, but yeah. I was just like, you know, it's a bunch of Christians who get together on Friday night and sing songs. Yeah, that's weird. But yeah. But that being said, I I was like, I'm down with the Wheaton liberal arts to the hilt, like you said, mm-hmm. um, academic institution with this Christianity, broadly speaking, being um, or Protestant Christianity, broadly speaking, being at the core of that, mm-hmm. that learning. So that the intersection of faith and learning. But I will say there were multiple times when I was there where controversies would arise that I thought, where the hell am I? Right. Yeah, because yeah. Ooh, I believe Wheaton mm-hmm. College is evangelicalism on steroids. Wow. And I've always said that. I said that when I was there and I say that yeah, now. Yeah, it makes it's, sense, though. Because like you said, if it's if it's seen as being like literally the pillar and foundation of mm. this broader movement, mm. there's an there's an aura around that mm. upholding of that tradition. Mm. And I have no need for being in the midst of like I just I don't have any kind of I don't have an iron in that fire. My goal there was to be representative of myself and my tradition, which is a black prophetic tradition. Mm. And to a lot of white evangelicals, Wheaton or otherwise, Mm -hmm. the prophetic voice sounds like a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal in the words of the Apostle Paul. Amen. Amen. So as far as I know, scripture should be read in its totality. And those prophetic books aren't nullified by Jesus. In fact, he fulfills them. Yes. And so when I'm coming into a very white space every day, that's called, I'm, I'm entering literally into a different culture. 
every day. Mm. And so I so to bring my total self, to bring my whole self to the classroom, to that community, and to be called to speak into issues of race, gender, sexuality, time and again, and then to be rebuffed when I do, that's and messed to up. Have your Christianity questions. And that's messed up. And yeah. so I was not I wasn't having that, as we say, because we're walking on the road. Mm-hmm. Larisha wasn't having that. Um, <laughs> so That's for real. <laughs> and I, I, I was never having that. I was yeah. never having that. This is, And so there were mm-hmm. multiple times, not just that time, to get back to your original question, yeah, yeah. where I was like, what the hell? Like, what yeah. is happening? I'm sorry. Yeah. I just cursed on you. Oh, show. no, no, no. You're allowed. I mean, this hell- is the road. We do that. <laughs> Hell's a thing, right? Yeah, actually, that's for real. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Thanks. And just one more question. How did it feel when you first put on that hijab and walked out the door? Mm. So it was, so when I first put on the hijab, it was an evening. And so I took the photo, mm. made the post at 10 p.m. on a Thursday night, mm. woke up on a Friday. The first person I saw was a neighbor of mine named Kareem. Mm. Um, and he's Muslim. And... He, he, I felt sheepish and he looked at me and he said, you look beautiful. And I explained what I was doing and he said, oh, I love you, baby. Have a good day. <laughs> you know? Wow. So the first person I saw was literally my Muslim neighbor. How about that? Who wow. affirmed me. Who you were standing in solidarity with. Mm-hmm. And it gave me strength, right? Yeah. Yep. Amen. And, and Linda, can you tell us about like the moment when you first got the idea for this film like how did you find out about all of this and then when did you say this needs to be a documentary this needs to be a film sure so I had just moved to Baton Rouge Louisiana in uh, early August 2015 I'm not from there but my husband took a job with LSU Mm -hmm. and so I'd only been there a couple of months and and to be honest, it was a difficult move. And um, I laugh about this because I had no friends mm. or family. And I had a lot of time on my hands. So, oh my goodness. Um, you, know, yes. <laughs> you know what happens when you have too much time on your hands. Exactly. <laughs> you decide, I'm going to embark on a documentary. Yeah. Um, but um, wow. there was a day in my office where I happened to notice just a little news headline that uh, a professor at Wheaton College was wearing a hijab in solidarity with Muslim women. I am an alumna of Wheaton. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I noticed this and thought, mm-hmm. oh, that's really nice. Mm-hmm. Didn't really think anything of it. Mm-hmm. Couple days later, literally, since we're talking about hell, all hell had broken loose. Just right? two days later. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So then I start noticing all of these headlines popping up on my news feed. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was spending a lot of time reading the news because, again, I had nothing else to do. So um, mm-hmm. so I noticed this controversy that had arisen. And I have a group of friends from Wheaton that we have a little Facebook group called The Thread. And... Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's like a dozen of us or something. And we, it's like having an ongoing cocktail party that's lasted for like a decade now. Oh so we it's sort of so communicate. Cool. So if my yeah. friends were all like, are you guys seeing this? Um, and we all started talking about it internally. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, this blew up into this this huge thing globally, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this was a global controversy. Wow. And I just kept getting sucked into it. I really became consumed with it. Because for one thing, as the events unfolded, it was 
almost like a thriller. You know, every day there was some new development. Um, And, you know, it's amazing to me, even now when I look at the film, so much happened in such a short amount of time. So every time I would check, you know, the news feed, there was some new, you know, Larisha has been suspended. And I was like, what? Why was she suspended? You know, how could this happen? You know, it just, every time you check, there was some new twist and turn that happened. And I have to say, I was fairly agnostic in terms of I didn't know I didn't know whose side I was on. I was really more it was just sort of fascinating as an alum to be like, oh wow, my school's in the middle of this huge cray controversy. Cray. Yes, cray cray was <laughs> happening. What I really became fascinated with was how alumni were dividing over this. Mm-hmm. And you know, now we live with this polarization sort of in every aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. Four years ago, it just wasn't as on the surface, Mm -hmm. at least not to my eyes. I'm not saying that it wasn't maybe other people. Well, I know other people were seeing that. But to me, it was like, whoa, this really profound thing is happening. And on the one side, you had alumni like me that were like, yeah, get it. She's kind of doing what Jesus did. She's standing in about it. You know, like I I get she's standing with the marginalized. It kind of made sense. Yeah. And then you had other alumni that said she's a heretic because part of what we haven't discussed yet is that when Larisha took the selfie and posted it on Facebook, she quoted Pope Francis as saying that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Mm-hmm. So this statement quickly became the fulcrum of all of the attention. That's right. right? That's right. And so you had people that felt like, well, she's a heretic for saying this and needs to be fired. So the so this polarization that was taking place really started captivating me. Yeah. I don't know how to explain why I had this deep call in my soul to do this story, but I really became obsessed with it. There's no other word. I was so wow. agitated by it yeah. and was like, what is happening? Something big is happening. I could sense more than I could articulate this is indicative of something happening in the broader culture that is way beyond Wheaton College. Mm -hmm. If I had just thought it was about Wheaton College, I never would have done the film. Right. That's the truth, because it's too small, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But I could tell Mm -hmm. this is a bigger thing. This is our cultural, it's a cultural shift that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking, what do I do? What do I do? Wow. (laughs) So one day I was changing clothes. This was about three weeks into the controversy. I'm literally changing clothes in my closet, my walk-in closet. I'm like half-dressed, and it came to me, this has to be a film. Like, this has to be a documentary. Oh, wow. Which is an odd... So I froze, like, you know, like half-dressed. Oh, I'm my like gosh. like frozen, so you know, you can see me, but like I got like, my hand over it's my like head. But it literally, I know, I'm like, <laughs> holy cow. It was a eureka moment, yeah, yeah. you know, in a cartoon character. <laughs> and then when I thought that, I realized, oh, this has to be documented. You know, this story has to be told in this mm-hmm. way. Mm. So then my next thought was, you know, I don't, I have no money. And <laughs> this is like the worst possible time in my life to, mm-hmm. to be doing this on, you know, a variety of reasons. But my family, you know, we were displaced. Like there was just, there were, yeah, this was not the right time to do this. Um, <laughs> but I realized I need to get some backing for this. And so I went to a couple of um, friends of mine from school mm-hmm. and said, basically, would you give me some seed funding so I can start this? And really having no idea 
what was like how I was going to do this. But right. I said, I won't do this unless um, Larisha Hawkins will agree to it. So they said, yes, we'll give you enough money to basically do a first interview. Wow. And um, but then I had to get her book. So I, I emailed, I sent a cold email to Larisha because I didn't know her. Mm-hmm. And um, she, it was such a madhouse that she had just a friend who was checking her email for her friend from college. Mm-hmm. And Larisha and I actually never talked personally because she was, she was too busy. I mean, yeah. she couldn't. I mean, Trying to busy is everything. not the right word. She was, you know, consumed. consumed yes, that's yeah. the right word. So her friend basically looked at my work and looked at the line, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. and said to Larisha, I think you should do this. And Larisha agreed. And it's funny, we were talking about this last night in our hotel room that mm-hmm. I, I don't know that she had a deep thought about why she was doing it. And even if she had asked wow. me, what do you think is going to happen with this film? I would have. I couldn't have told you. I mean, I was yeah. like, I don't know. Like, all I know is that I think we need to do this yeah. and that we need to start this process. So, Can yeah. I just say, I'm really grateful that you did it. I mean, I think that everybody, everybody who was at all connected to evangelicalism around that time and people who were curious about it, heard about it, and everybody had thoughts and feelings, but then it kind of went away. And there were a lot of questions, actually, about what happened that the film really does address and the film kind of clarifies the story and also clarifies the issue at the crux of it and you're right it kind of cements it um, for time and memoriam for others to come and learn from this story so you know before we go to um, to a little break here I want to say thank you for doing this film and I want to say everybody needs to see this film and we're going to give you a way to do that a little bit later these are our stories You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So, Larisha. Larisha. So, Lisa. Yeah. So, what has embodied solidarity with Muslim women taught you about the particular experience of being a Muslim woman in the U.S.? Now, I realize you're not Muslim. You don't have that long history. But something about living that experience for Advent, I'm sure, taught you some lessons. What were they? Mm-hmm. And I would even say since wearing the hijab and solidarity with Muslim, embodied solidarity with Muslim women, just being in Muslim communities, it taught me a lot about the humility that one has to undertake and the strength, right? Mm-hmm. Muslim women don't cower. They're some of the strongest women I've ever met. Wow. Ooh. Because there's a, 
it, there's a determination when you decide to literally wear your religion on your head. Wow. And it's not really, actually, I should correct myself and say it's not religion. It's devotion. Mm-hmm. It's worship. It's an act of worship. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant act of worship because Muslim women, if you have friends who wear the hijab, you you may not know, or you may know, mm-hmm. that they constantly tend it because to be covered, to cover the hair, to cover the neck, to cover the shoulders, etc., requires constant tending because um, our hair, you know, yeah. during the day things shift around, and so mm. I learned that there's that that worship is a constant act when you're wearing the hijab, wow. and that's humbling. And it reminds me of, you know, in my own understanding of Christianity, one of the verses you learn as a little kid is something like, "Put on the full armor of God, the breastplate mm-hmm. of righteousness, and um, carry the sword of truth," which I don't like the yeah. kind of, uh, you know, vitriolic, not vitriolic, but warlike, warlike nature yeah. of that language. Mm-hmm. However, the point is to prepare yourself for godliness and to have an intention to honor God with our bodies. And mm-hmm. so a woman who is Muslim explained to me that the hijab is for everyone, whether a woman covers or not. Um, hijab is also for men because hijab really is a concept, a religious concept that means to honor God with our bodies. So Muslim men need to consider themselves also in this sense of the hijab. So it was very humbling. And, and I mentioned earlier walking out and seeing my neighbor. Also, there are many varieties and forms. So, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking about Twitter in the mm-hmm. break. You know, people would tweet and say, well, she's not even wearing it right. And and other Muslims will come back and say, there are many different ways of wearing the hijab, you know, like, wow. and so mm-hmm. there are, it's in many forms, burqas, et cetera, mm-hmm. niqabs. Um, and so it's, it's really also reminded me that relative to other countries in our country, people talk about religious freedom and they talk about liberty and it only goes so deep. People don't want to extend it to the right Muslim women to wear literally wear their faith on their head. And so and, and of course no one's like telling a nun to take off her habit when she Hello, goes to the, when she goes to take her driver's license picture. Wow, right? That's deep. And so but there are active huh. efforts to abrogate the rights of Muslim women. Um, and it's related to the times that we're in. Wow. Well and also, you know, this scripture, New Testament, <laughs> Paul says women should keep their heads covered. covered. Mm-hmm. Now, Hello. of course, in Christian teaching, this is one of those verses that most people are like, oh, well, that was for that culture and it's not a time for now. Mm-hmm. We decide that in the middle of those scriptures, of course, the other scriptures yeah. were like, but these apply, but this one does not. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, then, that's another conversation. That yeah. is another conversation. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. It's good. Um, but but when you think about that, what is the irony that I think the same Christian women who attacked Laricia for doing this are mm-hmm. ignore that own teaching in their scripture? So it's, you know, it's I, to me, yeah. it's very helpful as Laricia is explaining that hijab is more of a concept. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what, what that's something we could learn from. Yeah. I think as Christians wow. to say, what is that concept? Maybe it's. Maybe this was a cultural t- 
teaching, that's fine. But what in that concept is important? Why is that important? Also, Mary, the mother of God, wore the hijab. Hello. Yeah. Like, Hello, this somebody. Is, this, wow. It's also, it's also cultural, right? Mm-hmm. And so to think about the fact that Christian missionaries who go to the Middle East, and I have some friends who have been um, mm-hmm. actual missionaries in mm-hmm. Tunisia, Morocco, other countries, mostly in North Africa, they wear hijab when they live in these countries. They also mm-hmm. practice Ramadan, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, they participate mm-hmm. in, in min- most of the Muslim high holidays as a way of understanding the culture. Now, this is not mission work is a whole other thing like a different sure. conversation for a different day yeah. but it's not it's it's interesting how when it comes down to it the ways that people are willing to all of a sudden I don't, I don't even know the words I'm looking for scapegoat yeah <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's a word. And, <laughs> or, and or like the rules are different for different people. How you get to wear your faith. In Philadelphia, there is a case where I think in the public schools, mm-hmm. um, they, there's a rule. Well, not just maybe it's Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. A woman has worn a cross to work. And it's okay to wear a cross, but it's not okay for a certain teacher to wear it. Can job. I ask a question? So what would be what, what do you now? We got to go there, y'all. We got to go there because we're on Freedom Road right now. So what do you think would have been the difference if you were white? Oh, girl. Hello. The first thing my mom my mom said, if you were Angelina Jolie, this would not be an issue. <laughs> Everyone would be oh doing it. <laughs> wow. She has Sorry, done mommy. it. Sorry, mommy. She has done it. And we still go to her movies. Right? Hello, you. somebody. So she yeah. was like, if you were Angelina Jolie, everyone would be doing this. There would be no wow. controversy. Well, that says it. So, oh my gosh. Okay, so what did you, what did your experience at Wheaton teach you about evangelicalism? Hmm. Well, I like that you say evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. I like to be clear as a professor of political science at the intersection of race, ethnicity, religion, and politics that evangelicals are people. Mm-hmm. Evangelicalism is a socio-political movement mm-hmm. with all of its attendant, let's say strengths, which I think forming interest groups is a strength of our republic, right? That you have the right to form around shared and common interests. Evangelicalism, though, is this behemoth that has become synonymous with republicanism and with white Christians. And and it's not to say that there aren't black and brown and other um, hues of Christians in that evangelicalism camp who like bumper sticker, I vote by the book, whatever that means. Like I vote according to Leviticus, which means like, (laughs) which means no, you know, Sharia law. (laughs) I stone people. Which means, yes. Which means. uh, Ridiculous. And I didn't wear polyester. Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh my gosh, right. Sodom and Gomorrah politics, right. right? And you don't eat crabs. (laughs) Yes. I was like, (laughs) the hooves, right? Or lobster. (laughs) So, which some people don't, right? Right. But the, the point is, religion is ridiculous, all of it's ridiculous when you look at it. I'm like, religion is weird. Like, I used to teach, like, <laughs> like a class on religion. Like, let's just put that out there. Religion's weird. Like, Leviticus, it's, we're saying Leviticus, haha. Some Some of the things we just made fun of are part of people's <laughs> right. practice. Right. Right. And it's so true. that being said, Sorry. acknowledging, no, <laughs> but true. acknowledging that religion is just right. weird, it gets mm-hmm. weirder when you try to conflate 
Americanness, patriotism, nationalism with Christianity. Wow. When you try to implant an American flag That's a good on top wow. of the Christian flag mm-hmm. and then say that Jesus is white. Well, which he wasn't, people. <laughs> and, I mean, like, just that's wasn't. just, there's an attendant kind of cultural consequences. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes the arbiter. If th- These people become the arbiter of what is good and true mm-hmm. and beautiful in culture and in politics. And so then that means they want to co-opt a, com- a broader conversation about what it means to be American. Mm-hmm. And to be American is to be white, broadly Christian in the small C sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter you know, in the case of our president, like that you think you can't, you don't, you know, you don't know how to say second Timothy or Corinthians or whatever. It oh was. my gosh. Two Corinthians. Yes. So that being said, it only goes skin deep. Mm, evangelicalism know? only goes skin, skin deep. Well, or well what goes skin deep? the, the, yeah. Some of those commitments, it's like, it, it becomes a litmus test. Hmm. If you check the right box, Oh, the political boxes, mm-hmm. the social boxes, mm-hmm. then you can be an evangelical. Mm-hmm. So that's really but deep. But I want to say the theological boxes, There's too. something there, yes. too, right? Yeah. It's not, I mean, because yeah. I want to ask you, because you say social political, wouldn't you say that there's also a theological realm to this as well? I don't, I don't think most of these people are deeply theological. I think you give them too much credit. Sorry. Okay, so what you're so okay, so maybe it's as a sociologist and a political scientist, you are not interested in what people say they believe. You're interested in how what they do in the world. Well, I'm interested in not giving people credit for having more understanding than they have. Mm-hmm. So I don't think most evangelicals can tell you what that means. No, I think you're right. It means mm-hmm. commitment to biblical authority, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It means commitment to well and in some cases inerrancy or actual mm-hmm. like strict reading of mm-hmm. scripture right mm-hmm. um literal interpret like literal interpretation of Although scripture that's and that's it is more fundamentalist but people don't know the damn difference they don't that's true so that being mm. said there's not a lot of sophistication in even how they think about what it means to be a Christian. And and I'm not I'm not saying that people have to be overly theological. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to give people credit for having some deep understanding of what theology is or how it works. Mm-hmm. I think it's often used as a weapon. And when I say litmus test, it mm-hmm. is a facile understanding of what life means in scripture, right? Mm-hmm. So there's one verse in Psalms that apparently defines the whole ab- abortion debate. Right? Right? And I'm also saying, like, but I know that within Catholic teaching, there's something called the seamless garment of life, the consistent ethic of life. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I disrespect people who have a coherent theology, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that consistent ethic is something that has been thought about for centuries. Mm -hmm. I don't think evangelicals have a coherent necessarily. That's exactly right. And so, and that's not a critique. It's just... I don't like, so there's no one theology that undergirds evangelicalism. Mm. Um, Mm. And there are some people who are very thoughtful about 
what it means to connect their faith to their politics. So I'm, I'm trying not to paint an overly broad brush, mm-hmm. but I think the people who are at the core of defining who's in and who's out, well, it comes down to litmus tests. Do you check the right box on abortion has nothing to do with your faith mm-hmm. or your theology. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you against homosexuals? Because it's only homosexuals, right? right? Are you against homosexual marriage? Yes or no. It's like a value voter guide, right? <laughs> right? That's and exactly it, and they, right. they narrow it down to make it that simplistic. Like, and like, you don't have to think. You don't have to think about how your faith might inform you voting for a Democrat, God forbid, because you care about the education of children or you care about the poor and the party who everyone says they want to help the poor. Right. Right. And then when it comes down to it, how are we going to do that? That's called welfare. Wow. Okay. She just dropped the W bomb. So, so I mean, I'm welfare, just, what do you mean? What do you mean? I'm what just do you mean trying by that? to say, like, and I think what's that's, welfare just to explain that. And I think explain. like, so welfare is just broadly speaking, welfare is about well-being. And so if government's, okay. government's job is to do justice, but it is about programs too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if government's job is to do justice mm-hmm. to the most vulnerable on behalf of and in concert with the most vulnerable, then I believe welfare is a legitimate function of government. And so does every American who gets a social security check. Hello, somebody. Because somebody made you save your money, Mm -hmm, right? mm Mm-hmm. Looking out for the elderly. That's mm-hmm. what Medicare is. Yeah. And I don't see many rich people like sending back their social security checks. That's welfare. That's called welfare in every other country I but see this what you're one. Yeah. And so that being said, I think a Christian with an open mind can say, Yes, these are legitimate functions of government. Should churches do it first? Should communities do that first? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I think the litmus test, that's what I meant by litmus test. Okay, Sorry. That's y'all. good. No, I no, mean, no. So I was just trying to like bring it back to like the facileness, the the easy ways that evangelicalism puts Christianity on a par with not on a par, but like conflates Christianity and politics mm-hmm. and then says, if you don't check this box, you're not a good Christian yeah. and you're out. Yeah. I'm like, well, kick me out. That's that, deep. And I'm I'm aware that there may be people listening to this podcast who are thinking it's not really what an evangelical is. So I'm thinking about the articles that I've read, numerous articles, oh, yeah, right? Totally. So th- there's this mm-hmm. lament that I think is happening within the more intellectual community who mm-hmm. actually knows the history of evangelicalism, who mm-hmm. would say, but that's not really what an evangelical is. I mean, that's right? what I've been arguing for a decade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, right? but um, you know, and it, there's a lot of hand-wringing, I think, that mm-hmm. has gone on. Like, wait, these people have, they have co-opted. Mm-hmm. the word evangelicalism and put it with their Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. But that's not really who we are. Mm-hmm. And I've thought a lot about this. This one of the things that I really am exploring somewhat in the film. Mm-hmm. I think over the past several years, as somebody who grew up in an evangelical culture, like steeped in evangelicalism, I know the difference between fundamentalism and evangelicalism. Yeah. Because I grew, when I was a kindergartner, I went to a fundamentalist independent Baptist church. That's where my parents sent me to school. Wow. We pledged allegiance to the flag every morning. Mm-hmm. Then we pledged allegiance to the Bible. I was not allowed to wear pants. 
I mean, it was straight up wow. fundamentalist. Like for real? For real. Oh, my yes. gosh. Okay. I hated it. So in the you fourth- had your therapy yet? No. <laughs> my whole life. Just wondering. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> That's fundamentalism. Uh-huh. But then I, I went to Wheaton College. I know what intellectual evangelicalism is about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Reading, you know, understanding who Calvin is. Reading, being sophisticated, being more intellectual about it. I know that difference. Mm -hmm. I think what has been fascinating for me these recent years is seeing it unravel. Yes. And realizing that it is all together. And I think a lot of people have struggled with acknowledging that, that that white supremacy is very much at the root of it. And it's it's this isn't about people being well-intentioned mm -hmm. or good people like my parents I think are good people mm -hmm. you know they yeah. weren't trying to send me to a crazy fundamentalist school they're doing the best that they could but right. the, the systems that are at play that people have uh, lived into the culture that has developed it has conflated and I think that's difficult for people to see and acknowledge so you get a lot of articles about like we're not real we're not these we're not them. We're not them. Mm -hmm. We're not Jerry Falwell Jr. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you kind of are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but but you are. Wow, that's really interesting. And so, so Larisha, now here's the thing. Larisha talks about um, embodied solidarity. And toward the end of the film, Larisha, you talk about embodied solidarity as a form of death. That really rocked me. You talked about that people who are going to exercise embodied solidarity have to be willing to face death. And there's lots of forms of death. And I, I want to ask you both a question. What forms of death have you experienced as you have embodied solidarity? And I, I'm looking at both of you because, Larisha, I think it's obvious for you, you put on that hijab, what died for you? What was the death that you experienced? And then but you're doing this film and the film is coming out now. And that in, in itself is a form of embodied solidarity, actually. Yeah. And so what forms of death have you experienced as a result of standing with through the making of this film? Can we talk for each other? Oh, OK. Yeah, that's fine. Because we spend a lot of time together. <laughs> sure. so, so we're walking on the Freedom Road and I'll, tell, fun, I'll, yeah. I'll say what I think. And then like Linda mm -hmm. can fill in. And when she says then maybe I can fill in stuff, too. Yeah. Sure. And add things. Is that OK? Yeah. No, OK. It's fun. It's good. So I know that a death Linda has experienced is in her own religious community. Mm. Like. There has not been support for her. Right. Like her own church has essentially refused to support the film, support her. And so I think wow, there's a form of social death that has occurred for her, that there are people very close to her who didn't want her to do the film. Mm -hmm. And and often these are things people who care about you and and who want who want to protect you from some potential consequences, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I think for her so it, there's also this form of religious death, right? Because, mm. so I'll refer to me briefly, but in the same way that I have literally been been exiled from religious community, um, 
that she's also experienced, you know, social, cultural, religious death. Um, and sometimes those intersect and overlap, and sometimes they're they're kind of separate. But. Wow. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about exile from religious community. Can you go a little bit more into that? What does that look like for you? And if you relate to that, what does it look like for you, Linda? Either one. Well, I want to, before that, though, I want to say what I think Larisha has lost, because I think okay. this is important for people to, um, in a, in a, exile is the right word. So yeah. this segues into your question. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that became clear to me is I filmed with Larisha for several years. You yes. know, and would like I'd go away and then I'd come back six months later and pop into her life for a few mm-hmm. days and just kind of capture what was happening. But mm-hmm. it is not an understatement to say that Lurisha lost everything. She didn't lose her family. She has a great family. Wow. And her family's in the film. They're such great people. I love them. They are, I, I know, know I know, them, but I love them. I know yeah, her grannies yeah. in it. I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> wonderful. But she literally lost everything. She lost her job. Mm-hmm. But I think what people don't know, maybe until they see the film and maybe they haven't considered, is that she lost her her book club. She had to mm. leave Chicago. She lost the apartment that she has lived in for a decade. Wow. She lost her neighbors. She was itinerant for a long time, going back and forth between two locations as she went to Charlottesville, where she ended up having a fellowship. She lost health insurance. She lost a stable income. She lost job prospects for the future because getting tenure is not an easy thing. And I think the chances are slim that she will end up with that sort of job security again. And on top of all of that, she was vilified in the public where people misunderstood who she is. Right. She lost her identity and she lost her ability to teach in the way that she wants to teach. So I could go on, but Larisha lost everything. By identity, do you mean control over her identity? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, no, that's a good every, way to say that, yes. Everybody else gets to yes. write the, her story. Not that she doesn't know who she is. Yeah. yeah. But the misconceptions about who she is yeah. are profound. I mean, I have I've had a few people that have seen the film and walked in and said... I thought she was Muslim. Like they like they don't even know that she's a Christian. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. This is like very basic wow. difference because they are so um I, I've had many people tell me, I thought Wheaton College had a Muslim teaching. And it's like, well, you A don't know anything about Wheaton College because that would never <laughs> happen. You know what I mean? Like statement of faith, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. right. Yeah. You know, but mm-hmm. um yeah. That's really helpful. Well, we I think, yeah, and if you can hear my voice shifted, because it's, it's mm-hmm. hard to hear that, um, mm-hmm. but like that. Because um, we talk on the road all the time. Yeah. You know, we shared a hotel room last night. You yeah. know, we're, we're good friends. We're family. I, I can't. Um, it's okay. I can't say how hard it is to be exiled from your faith community. Wow. And to be scapegoated. The sins of the institution that that's what scapegoat is they put the sins on the back of the animal it's a sacrifice it's a literal sacrifice and the scapegoat is cast out into the wilderness right but i believe that christians are wilderness people like i think we're called to be on the margins that's what that's what jesus modeled Mm -hmm. john the baptist isn't the 
anti-model. He's the model. Like, we are supposed to be amongst the margins. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're called to go in to the center, but I want to live on the periphery anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'm willing to be exiled again and again and again. But I think the personal toll, like the death, because you were asking about death, is it's difficult to realize that like I'm experiencing a religious death because religion is so central to my own identity and narrative. My grandfather was a pastor Mm -hmm. who baptized me. Black Baptist Church, Oklahoma City, you know, segregated, redlining. So there was no Baptist church on that side of town. My grandfather was an engineer, first supervisor in Oklahoma City at the FAA, (laughs) which is a big deal, fought in World War II, came -hmm. home to Oklahoma City to be spit on walking on the sidewalk because that's America. Mm -hmm. And cashed in his retirement to start this church. That's how committed he was to his calling. Not foolish, but the wisdom of the world was foolishness to him. And my mom was 13, so she remembers very well them going from black upper middle class to that. My grandmother worked when my mom was young, but she had eight kids. So that was a that was a that was an embodied solidarity and so for the center of my the core of my existence is i say in the film my spiritual journey has always pointed towards jesus before i knew who jesus was mm-hmm. because that's in my dna it doesn't mean i was born a christian mm-hmm. but that that radical jesus following is in my family but to be exiled from those communities has been a death Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, We find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. Okay, so I want to ask one more question um, that's from our last segment. And this is actually directed at you, Linda, as a white woman. What did you learn about race by doing this film? Bring it, girl. Bring it. Mm. Yeah, Mm. what didn't I learn? Because y'all can't see her. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She white. Yeah, she's very, she's white. (laughs) She's not very white. She's got dark hair, but yeah, she's white. My name's Larisha. That might give you a quick. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But really, 
I had an epiphany when I was like, oh, I have a black name. Oh, my God. Isn't mom. that something? Mom. I was wow. like, mom, I have a black name. She was like, oh, I don't know. What'd she say? What'd she say? I didn't realize it. Well, I mean, this is just how America is. Like, the fact that I can say you have a black name. Well, but, I hello, mean, that's right. You know, it is so stupid. But then I, what, I re- what I was realizing is people hear my name and they'll say, well, that's interesting. And I'm like, oh, mm. that's code for. Well, that's fairly black. That's very black. <laughs> You know, exactly. Which is weird, you know? What I get is people mispronounce your name a lot. Yes. And this really bothered me when this was going on. People yeah. would say Laricia. Yeah. Or or they, they can't pronounce it. Which is okay in, in I was Spanish. Told two different ways to say it. Which is okay. Like in certain languages, I'll just say Laricia because it's easier oh. in certain languages, it flows. But that's oh. often not the case. Yeah. Okay. Laricia is easier to say in Spanish than Laricia. So anyway. To be fair, my last name is Midget. And so people <laughs> oh, no. I am five nine for those of you who Linda. cannot see this. No, but I, I had to laugh. Um, yeah. Last night we had a screening and the woman who met me, she said, now, how do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> and I said, it's Midget. And she's like, I thought maybe it was Midget or something. <laughs> she, like, she was trying to help yeah. you out. She was it was very funny. I'm like, it is not. This is okay, crazy. so white anyway. woman, what did you know about, what did you learn about <laughs> race? Really? What did you learn about race through this experience? Because you have a black woman putting on yeah. a hijab in a white institution who then gets exiled. Yeah. Right. And she's not Angelina Jolie. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I learned so much that is it's difficult to even encapsulate it. But I will say when I started filming, I remember seeing on Facebook um, one man that was arguing about this. That, that, that There was, of course, a lot of conversation in the public, like, is this racism at play? Is this about race? And I remember mm-hmm. one man put in all caps, this is not about race. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking and thinking, are you sure? Are you <laughs> sure it's not about race? I'm yeah. not sure it's not about race, but I couldn't tell you why it was about race, but mm-hmm. I just wasn't so sure it wasn't, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But people wanted to say this is about theology. Right. And so that was the that was the talking point. This is about theology. This is not about race. Mm-hmm. So I went into this thinking, okay, is it about race? Mm-hmm. I will tell you a story of... Um, a real growth experience that stands out for me. And it's actually the very first interview that I did with mm-hmm. Larisha. Mm-hmm. So one of the the things that happened during this saga with Wheaton is um, the provost who suspended her, who made up a kind of suspension that didn't exist in the faculty handbook. The provost had asked her to clarify some theological statements because, again, this is about theology, right? Yeah. And so she answered those questions brilliantly, and he said as much, this is great, you know, but we want to keep having theological discussions with you. And she said, no, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to keep doing that. She's a poli-sci professor, right? So why do they need a second level of theological conversation when she answered it perfectly anyway? Sorry, I just thought I'd interject that. Yeah, no, no. No, but it's, well, because the, the, the... The bar kept moving, right? It's uh-huh. like, yeah, we know you jumped over that hurdle, but now we have another one, and we're going to move it a little further out, and we're mm-hmm. just going to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. But I remember, this is before I started filming with her, before I knew that I was going to do a documentary. Right. I remember reading that she had said no, and I thought, oh, well, that's not 
that's not how you play the game. Like, that's uh-huh. not going to help her. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I was, and honestly, I, it was like, I don't understand why she did that. Because mm-hmm. if she wants to keep her job, she needs to keep playing the game. And everybody knows that means you just keep saying, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. May I have another? So this was one of the questions that I had for Larisha when I went for the first interview. And again, as I said earlier, we'd never talked mm-hmm. on the phone. So there was no pre-interview. Mm-hmm. So I go to interview her. In Houston, it was a four-hour interview. And the first interview was just, it was one long, like, who are you, right? right. Like, I've been reading about you for a month. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, absorbed all this information about you. But who are you? And so we just started at ground zero, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. she told me about growing up in Oklahoma City and um, her grandfather baptizing her and all these stories. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening for four hours, just listening. Wow. Four hours. Four hours. Yeah. And we still didn't wow. get there everything, by the way. Yeah. You know, but just with, with tremendous curiosity and I think mm-hmm. an open heart and trying to understand where she was coming from. Mm-hmm. So she shared a story that's in the film. And it's a story of how she and her sisters, when they were young, were basically put in the lower classes, the bottom class at their school. Mm-hmm. Now, you've heard Larisha talk. Yeah. And let me just say, yeah, homegirl is not in the bottom class. She's like, not she's in the not bottom, in the bottom, bottom class. At all. Right. In fact, my the Lord. first interview I did with her, Larisha's vocabulary, like my brain was like, oh, holy cow, I've been out of college said, for a long time. I can't even like. She just said Basel, and I was like, okay, what does that mean? Thank was you. Like- <laughs> I know. This is every conversation with Larisha, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So they were, in the, they were put in the bottom classes, and it was solely because of their race. Mm-hmm. As she told me that story, and I suddenly connected the dots, and I'm like, wow. Her, her primary educational experience as a child was trouble with the educational system. Mm-hmm. And here she is with a PhD, again, having trouble with the educational system My that kind of can't handle her. My God. And it clicked with me. And I had never, we hadn't even gotten to me asking her about why did you say no to the provost. But I remember mm-hmm. sitting there and thinking, oh, that's why she said no to the provost because she has done this her whole life of having to justify who she is justify being in the top class that's right. you know what i mean that's yes. that's her narrative and that's a narrative that as a white woman i have no experience with that and in mm-hmm. fact i've had the opposite experience because guess what i was a smart kid too but nobody mm-hmm. put me in the bottom classes Mm-hmm. Nobody thought to do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have to fight. They just were like, oh, you test really high. You're in the top classes. That's yeah, the story of my life. Unless people say, well, but that's just Larisha's experience. That is literally the MO. Like, that's mm-hmm. the modus operandi. I was I was actually mm-hmm. sharing earlier uh, with Linda that my family had the same experience. Like, my mom literally had to go... She had to go up to the school for every one of her six kids. She had to go up to the school and fight for them to be taken out of the lowest or second lowest reading group. Mm-hmm. And they did. And and I was in the highest reading group when we were in Philadelphia in a mostly black school, a largely black school. I think in my whole class, there were three white people. Every single time she had to go up and fight. And the next generation had to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. This is just the way that it works. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny because um, there is an African-American woman who reviewed one of the very early cuts of the film. She's also a producer. 
And she thought, oh, take that out. She said, everybody's got a story like that. Like, for her, as a black woman, mm-hmm. it was, like, not a remarkable story. It was like, story. duh. Oh, there you go. And like, That's so obvious. And it, isn't it funny? Because <laughs> yeah, if she yeah. had made the film, she would have taken that story out. But wow. for me, as a white woman, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. No, this it's like, is I know unique. the white audience needs to hear that. I yeah. needed to hear that because yeah. it gave me insight into the situation. It helped me understand her better. And I wouldn't have thought it was significant either, right? Really? I wouldn't have connected my own... I mean, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. But So when you told me she framed... We were doing another podcast, and when she framed it as... I realized then you had to say no because this has been your educational experience your whole life. And when I say, like, this is my dignity, for me, it was just like, this is undignified. Yeah. I'm not taking this sitting down. But see, as a white woman, to me, I could have given up that dignity because I wouldn't have really lost anything. Mm-hmm. Like, there, I wasn't really, I wouldn't, to me, that was playing the game. Well, I see, could have been like, I'm going to keep playing the game with you because I can afford to keep playing the game with you yeah. because I think I'm going to prevail at some point. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Because for me, it's just s- another injustice. <laughs> it's just another injustice. Heaped on the, like, heaped on the, the pile. It's not a microaggression. <laughs> this is a, like, aggression, aggression. I mean, like, right. I was like, hell no. Again, hell no. We won't go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not playing that song and dance. But it, there were times in my life where I would have, right? Mm. Because I grew up in that good oh, yeah, girl. Totally. Yeah. Like, even though I didn't call myself an evangelical, I was like, I grew up in that evangelical, like, say yes, sir, no, sir, massa, mm. white teacher, preacher, blah, 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 look mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. I spent my whole childhood looking down at the ground. Mm. Nope. Nope. Can the I only say, time I bow my head is to Jesus when I pray. Hello, hello, somebody. Wow. Can I just say, this is actually, it's kind of um, bringing up for me some conversations that I've had recently in white, black uh, conversations with women, you know, across the race line and realizing that this is one of the places where you see, I think what you just said, Linda, it, it clarifies how white women have learned to survive patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Because y'all got to sleep with them. Yeah. Right? Like you actually, it's your Ooh. home. It's Ooh. your home. Like it's, you have but to raise the but white, there's, white But there's boy. a lot of levels to y'all got to sleep with them. Yes. Which means that they have, like what I'm saying is, and this really blew my mind. I was in conversation with another friend recently that it blew my mind to, to realize like most white women are unaware that they're even having to deal with patriarchy because they've been so trained to do it but Mm -hmm. so so the fact that you had that moment it's actually i think a beautiful powerful moment Mm -hmm. for you to realize she's not playing the game Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and that black women can't play the game and not not anymore Mm -hmm. we can't if we're going to if we're going to survive with our dignity yes you know I think that the the bargain that that white women tend to play is that they will actually bow to the patriarchy. They'll say, um, yes, sir, can I have another? Or knowing that it's the patriarchy that runs Wheaton, they think of it as the patriarchy, not whiteness, right? Because it's the patriarchy. Well, I just know that, you know, we have to actually bow to the man. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's okay. But when you're a black woman, you actually... 
it's the whiteness piece that actually yeah. is the is the it's primary the, it's piece. It's the primary factor. It's the primary Which factor. Which is a good um, sorting out. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Because, no, I thought I love Linda's story. Like, when mm-hmm. she shared that, and she said, and it was further solidified when she went to Oklahoma to film my family, that that runs so deep. I mean, we went to my elementary school, and that's my first experience of racism. Mm-hmm. Education is just a part of the toolkit that, like the structural of structural racism it's a primary experience which is sad that for so many of us mm-hmm. our primary experience of racism if it's not in our neighborhood it's in our school mm-hmm. um and that mm-hmm. still devastates me and i'm and i'm so glad that part is in the film mm-hmm. i am but I it is it's important mm-hmm. it's it important. is such um an interesting conversation we're having about how we approach these things from different vantage points Amen. because of our positionality right Yes, because of social location, Mm -hmm. because of social location. So I want to ask now, Linda, how do you hope that this story will impact the world? And and also, is it already out or when does it come out? And by the way, this podcast will be coming out in Advent. (gasps) Oh, good. Yeah, it'll actually be out, um, coming out the first week of December. So in the middle of Advent. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we have been um, on a tour the film festival circuit for the past year and then doing these individual screenings we had one at the religious freedom center last night Mm -hmm. we've screened at universities but we're really about to have a big push where the film will be available in limited theaters probably sometime in january but before that um i think by the time this airs we will be on pbs affiliates around the country so we're working on that right now getting picked up sesame Uh, street and same god i know same channel (laughs) that just blows my mind reading rainbow same god same channel (laughs) and then um after that like Probably around March, it will be released digitally so people can watch it in their oh, homes. Fabulous. Do you mean like Netflix kind of digitally? Uh, Netflix or hasn't Hulu picked it up or? yet. We'll see. I mean, okay. I think it depends on how much um, how much momentum we're able to gain. But, okay. but like, Amazon so y'all tag Prime Netflix. Like we're that. asking you tag Netflix and say pick up Same yeah, God. We yeah. want Same God. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. you know, but I want to share with you that you know we've been going to PBS affiliates and mm-hmm. approaching them one by one to pick up the film and it's been difficult yeah wow PBS PBS are you kidding me this is like liberal PBS you know what Henry Louis Gates can I tell you yeah. yeah, PBS, the individual stations are afraid of angering their conservative Christian donors. Who knew? Oh my God. It's a fascinating snapshot of where we are in our country. And it's something I've really, even though I've been immersed in this for almost four years, I have been stunned. That is the word that I would use, stunned. Wow. I mean, I really thought PBS would be all over this. Oh my gosh, but they're yeah. afraid. They're afraid. And so, and this is one of the the really interesting dynamics. You know, um, white evangelicals feel so persecuted, right, in our country. They have this persecution complex. Mm-hmm. But from my vantage point, I will tell you the tremendous power that they have. Oh, yeah. So we've had at least one major station that has not, that will not air the film because of pressure from 
certain conservative Christians. Wow. My God. And honestly, if most people knew that conservative Christians were actually shaping that station's oh, lineup, yeah. they might lose the rest of their people. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Wow. So Now, I will tell you, and I, mm-hmm. I hope that this is still true by the time this airs, but the, the first station who came through with a positive response was Mississippi. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't even know what to do with that in my head. I, I really don't. I know. Except to say that be- I guess the places that have experienced the clash the most have done the most work. Yes. The state that has the lynching museum, I think, is the one who's able to say... Yeah, we know this might ruffle some feathers, but we're willing to go there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So is there a way for folks to engage the conversation about Same God? Do you have a hashtag that you're using? or Hashtag embodied solidarity. Oh, okay. Embodied, E-M-B-O-D-I-E-D, because it's an unusual term, sure. but embodied solidarity. And then hashtag Same God Film. So all of our social media is under Same God Film. Okay. Um, the website is under that, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Okay, yeah. awesome. Larisha, how has this experience changed you? Hmm. This is a good question, which is, you know, filler for, I'm thinking. Um, (laughs) Well, it certainly has changed me. Like Linda said, it's not an understatement to say that I've lost a lot. And I don't think about that in terms of material. I mean, that's definitely true. It's just a loss of an ability to engage my own sense of even curiosity, creativity, mm. in part because of the the emotional fallout of the trauma, um, yeah. post-traumatic stress syndrome totally. is not a joke. Mm. And so that being said, it's been it's been a learning experience. I mean, Wheaton being at Wheaton was really hard. I was looking back at one of my journals from that last semester. It was very hard, but I had a lot of joy and peace with the, the fact that the Peace and Conflict Studies program was underway. I was, I was like, just put your head down and, you know, enjoy this and stay out of the, you know, the hubbub that's always happening at, at Wheaton. And I was doing that. And I remember, I literally remember going, if this were the last class I ever taught, like, it would be this just would just be fine this is an enriching moment i remember thinking that in multiple classes mm-hmm. i don't know why i had that sensibility that sometimes as a professor you know when things are clicking on all cylinders yeah. and there's just a lot of joy in the momentum that the peace and conflict studies program was having it's still going mm-hmm. right wow i didn't know what would happen after i left it's on the books that doesn't mean they have to <laughs> to teach the classes mm-hmm. but they are and I, and apparently even my syllabus is largely intact from the intro class. But the th- important wow. thing that I feel like I've taken away um, mm-hmm. or the way that it's changed me is um, when you feel like you've lost everything, you've got nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to lose. That's um, right. And I believe I am called to live my life in a way. And I believed this before and I believe this now. I think Jesus calls me to live my life in a way that where I am radically 
poured out for the other. And what we have in the United States is radical individuation, people radically for themselves. Yes. And I think the way that, um, however, you, however your listeners think about Jesus historically, um, religiously, however they connect to that, what is not controversial about Jesus is Jesus was someone who embodied solidarity, mm-hmm. who went out of his way to go through Samaria, um, to go to leper colonies. And all of the great revolutionaries, all of the great reformers um, that I look up to, they themselves do the same thing. MLK goes to spend time in Chicago and lives in one of the poorest neighborhoods, Lawndale, to understand what he could not understand coming from his upper middle class background in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And going to Chicago changed him. That became the Poor People's Campaign. That's right. Right? Um, and the fact is, we can look at, you know, whether it's Dorothy Day or Jane Hull or other women who, um, Dolores Huerta, mm-hmm. like, the women that I admire, the men that I admire, you know, whether it's Gandhi, they are taking off their privilege. They recognize their privilege mm-hmm. and they're taking it off and saying, F that, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. this is not who I'm called to be. What I'm called to do is utilize my position mm-hmm. to advance and to walk with mm-hmm. the most oppressed. Mm-hmm. And embodied solidarity is about that. And it looks different for everyone, Mm -hmm. but it always has to be to the death. Like, Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. have to be willing to lay down our lives for our friends. That's not a culture of death. That's life. Life is death. Death is life. And so I don't know where you all are as you walk with us on this podcast journey today. But if you haven't committed to yourself that to live is to die, do that. Like, if you haven't found what it is that you're living for, that you're willing to die for, there has to be some soul work done. So, and it's a constant thing. It's not a one-shot thing. I'm, I'm still doing the soul work. And, and I'm just thankful to have been surrounded in this journey by people like you and, you know, David, who's behind the scenes here, who mm-hmm. are doing this work. Because on the other side of the pendulum we have people who want to exclude religion from the public square oh yeah to exclude religionist bodies i mean france for goodness sake and so this is not a localized fight this is this is a global fight for Mm -hmm. people of all faiths no faiths religious belief that we got to all of our all of these things hang together and so i'm committed to that so the change is really just seeing the humanity the namaste, I bow to the divine in you. And so I stand with my atheist, agnostic, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, as we seek to see the humanity. And that's that's what the powers that be threaten to pull us away from is our common humanity, and we won't let them. So, The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Galt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.com. 
us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates and we will not flood your inbox. That really is a promise. We literally send out like maybe one communication per month. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of every month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. Freedom Road.